Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. Anytime you cut into my body for a surgery, I grow a desmoid tumor in the same oh, spot. I've heard of this. Yeah, so I have a 99% regrowth rate on desmoids. And then also on top of that, I'm non-receptive to 98% uh, of treatments in the world. So most treatments don't work for uh, my tumors, cancer. Like, uh, Luckily, I beat cancer as a kid. And so I, I don't have cancer anymore. I'm a big advocate of cancer research and just, you know, spreading awareness for it, uh, for all cancers in general. But uh, the misconception is that I have cancer and I don't have cancer. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame and I am your host. I am so excited for this interview. I interviewed Lion Heron, who is a fifth-generation Angelino. His family first came to L.A. in the late 1800s. At the young age of seven, Lion was diagnosed with Gardner syndrome, an extremely rare disease that puts individuals at high risk for developing colorectal cancer and desmoid tumors. Lion was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer and embarked on a healing journey that included a variety of conventional and alternative treatment methods. He has had countless, literally countless surgeries, including the removal of a six pound tumor, stem cell therapy, immunotherapy, chemotherapy, and traveled near and far to see the top doctors in the world. Somewhere along the way, Lion discovered the power of drugs and alcohol. He began feeling he was invincible and found himself entrenched in addiction. Lion committed to sobriety after his health took a turn for the worse. Throughout his healing journey, he has discovered how to harness the power of the mind, realizing that our bodies can often endure much if our mind allows. While his battle with Gardner syndrome is ongoing, he is surrounded by an amazing community of people who provide ongoing support. Lion ultimately knows that all his suffering will help others. You know, we tried to make this episode not, not you know, a, a review of his medical record, so to speak, but there's a lot there to know about. You know, he's been told several times that he had three months to live. He's been told countless times that he was going to have to live in a state of, you know, extreme pain or certain conditions he was never going to heal from and all sorts of things. I mean, at one point he had he had full colorectal cancer, uh, thousands of polyps in his colon, and he had to have his entire, he had to have his large intestine removed. So, I mean, it has just been quite the journey in this last 18 months. He's been in and out of the hospital. I think he spent more than 300 days in the hospital. It's just, it's just such a story. And I think many of us would question whether or not we could be as positive and inspirational as Lion has been and and the community that's rallied around him and how this has affected his sobriety. And he talks about living in, with chronic pain in recovery and how to treat chronic pain in recovery. I think that's really important. You can follow Lion on Instagram at Lion, L-Y-O-N underscore Heron, H-E-R-R-O-N. In his Instagram bio, he has a GoFundMe to help with the myriad of medical bills that he deals with. He also has a clothing company called Lion Co., which is at L-Y-A-N-D-Co.la. And they sell all sorts of incredible, really cool clothing and accessories. And all the proceeds go to help Lion battle his disease. 
I hope everybody tunes into Lion's journey and follows along and supports him from near and far. So without further ado, I give you Lion Heron, episode 107. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Perfect. Sorry, I have an itchy new tattoo that's just killing Oh, let me, me see it. Let me see it. What'd you get? It's a Chuco Moreno piece. Oh. But done by Jason Stores. It's beautiful. Yeah, just a gap filler and then Yeah, I was gonna say, is that was that a like it was just to fill fill this area in. Yeah. And then we just have to do the elbow and then my armpit. Oh, the armpit man is gnarly. Yeah, I mean I have, have you I had have it, it close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna go into my armpit okay okay i'll do like to here okay okay yeah like i love tattoos so much i always have like since i was a kid like i told my fourth grade teacher i was gonna drop out of drop out of school and i was gonna be covered in tattoos like that was like (laughs) i fourth grade teacher (laughs) i believed it right uh that's hilarious i mean obviously i had a different trajectory than everyone else like with i i was going through very severe medical yeah. treatments and situations yeah in fourth grade and third grade and second grade you know and so like my life looked so much different than all these other kids that I and like my family we'll get into it but like my mom's younger brothers you know a hope to die junkie and yeah. fourth, like thank fucking god he's sober right now and he actually wants to be sober and it's been such a beautiful blessing but there's been you know I've seen him OD Mm-hmm. six times you know he's been in a coma three times in his life you know 16 days he's been on life support like we've been literally like minutes away from pulling the plug and so like but he's covered in tattoos and so as a kid i watched him get tattooed at like 15 we're only we're only 10 years apart him and i and so like i just looked up to him and everyone in my family's covered in tattoos yeah. so i had this conception that I was going to be just, you know, a product of my environment. And that's, and yeah. my, dad, my dad hates tattoos. My mom, oh, and dad, interesting. my mom and dad were never together. They were just a summer fling. And, and, uh, you know, my mom was 16. My dad was like 19 or 20 and he was working at Malibu jet ski. He's from, uh, he's from like Beverly Hills area. And so he was working in Malibu jet ski. My mom's, you know, from the uh, boo, from the boo We're we're, four generations in Malibu and we're five generations in Los Angeles on the West side, five generations, West side, five generations, West side, which like doesn't mean anything to people who don't haven't lived in LA, but big deal when you're, when you big live in deal LA, when you're from here and you yeah. live here, yeah, yeah. you're going to like, it's Especially like, that's a, now when it's so hard to get from the East to the West side, you're like, I'm sorry, there's a, there's an East side. I don't know. Yeah. People are like, what do you mean? I'm like, no, you just, I just don't go there. Yeah. Wait, so before we get start, like, before we drop fully into it, I just want to, yeah. we have a, a, a 
a tradition where we take bad haircut photos, which your haircut's not that bad. Everybody's sending me not that bad haircuts. I tried to find bad haircuts and I couldn't find bad haircuts. That's crazy. It's crazy. Well, okay. So tell me, I have this picture. This picture will go up with your episode on Instagram. So when people people will go check out the Instagram while we're talking about it. But just tell me what's up with this photo. What's going on in this photo? So my mom's eldest brother, Dale, he, uh, we were hanging out at my mom's house. Um, and my mom's sober, my stepdad's sober. He's not, but he's a normie. And a few other friends we had over there were sober as well. And one of them's, uh, my mom's best friends is a hairstylist. She's a, you know, that's what she does. And so, he was like, oh, I want a mullet. And he's like, but I don't know if I want it. Like, he was just kind of pussyfooting around it. Okay. And then I called him out. And, like, I've been shaving my head for, like, I usually have a shaved head. And I've had a shaved head for, I don't know, the last, like, three years. Like, I just, every other week, I'll just shave it. Yeah. And it was just easy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and before that, like, I would have crazy, like, I'd bleach my hair all the time. I'd bleach it and shave it. So it was just, like, Eminem style. Like I just, any, like, and as a kid, I would dye my hair all different colors just cause I. You couldn't find any of those photos? My mom's house burned in 2018 in oh the Wolsey fire. God, so a lot of our, right. a lot of our uh, house photos burned. Or a lot of our. None of, and, and none of, did you guys have a lot of them documented online or digital? No, no, all of them were, you know, four by sixes. I mean, we have, we have, my mom has a book of photos. She got some out. Yeah, she got some out, but a lot of them. Her her dad, who lives in Kansas, just had brought like books and books of family heritage photos, oh, all this different stuff. And my mom had just put it underneath the house in our little storage zone under the house, and and yeah, it was just a whole debacle. Like I told my mom like the day before the fire that it was going to come through. Like I just I I had like a very big inclination yeah. that this one was going to be the one that was going to come through, and my mom. I mean, understandably, was just being like optimistic and be like, no, it's not going to do it. Like, for whatever reason, the way the wind was blowing, the way the direction was, the way the path that it was taking, I just knew that it was going to the ocean. And so I always tell my mom, I was like, just start packing just in case. And it wasn't that I wanted to be like, I told you so. It wasn't, it was just yeah, like, no. get shit together yeah, just like- in case. Just and then case. slowly it started coming closer and it was on the other side of the freeway. And it's like, Oh, if it jumps, like it's not going to jump the freeway. Mm-hmm. It's three ways to, you know, it's the one. Yeah. It's too oh big. no, it was, Oh yeah. This the Woolsey was, was the higher. Woolsey, yeah. Yeah. The Woolsey was like coming from Simi Valley. That's right. And, and then it jumped the freeway and I was just like, and all of a sudden it was like this, Oh shit rush. What can we get out? And then her thought was like, I'm coming back to my house. Like I'm right. not, like it's not burning. Like and How, I, what like, kind of stuff did you grab? I don't I wasn't there. I was I just moved or did she grab? Like she grabbed her husband's uh grandfather's paintings. Okay. A few photo albums. Like I guess I was the only only photo album that she grabbed. Like my little sisters all burned, my little brothers all burned. Um, my medical records burned. I mean, we had so many family heirlooms and so yeah. much shit and it bulldozed through. I guess our house was the first one to go in, in our community because we had oh a deck. We had a deck that was, uh, or my mom had a deck that went up above the house on the hillside and the wood caught fire. And then it's, um, 
the community that they lived in was kind of like a, it was a nice mobile home park, like a really nice mobile home park in the mountains. Yeah. Okay. It's right off Mulholland and Canaan. Okay. And okay. Oh, deeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's like, I love it up there. Is that the ranch? So there's a ranch that was, that's been in your family in Malibu, that, right? Yeah. We sold that one right before the fire. My grandmother okay. sold it. Yeah. So that was the ranch that I, I grew up on. My mom grew up on. My grandmother grew up on. My great grandfather bought it in 1946. He bought 16 acres for next to nothing because there was no paved road going to Point Doom. Mm. So he got that for, he was just, a, he, we didn't come from a lot of money, but my great grandfather was really smart with the money that he had. Right. Him and his brother were uh, developers and you could say they started, you know, they were that early, early gentrification, I guess you would say. I wouldn't even call it gentrification because it wasn't, it was just the presence, building. like an early presence. The early presence of, you know, Venice, Santa Monica, Mar Vista, mm-hmm. and then Malibu. Like my great grandfather built the third house on Point Doom. And we were the eighth house from Canaan to Trancas. So, yeah, it just, we just have, we have really, uh, Deep roots. Deep roots in, in the Los Angeles area. And our family came over in the late 1800s. And my great, my great grandmother, my great, great aunt, and my, and my great, great grandparents opened the first liquor store on Rose in Venice uh, during Prohibition. And my great grandmother, great grandmother, I know, right, would sit behind the counter with a 12 gauge shotgun. She was like 13, 14 years old because there was these bootleggers that would come and try to rob the liquor store. Yeah, badass B. Yeah, so that was like that's, <laughs> you that's come from a long line. <laughs> fucking art. If you look back at, yeah, it's seriously. If you look back at the family history, like yeah. we come from a long line of outlaws. Like our yeah. Irish descent that came to the United States or came to America, like it my bloodline, we've gone back and done a lot of um ancestry stuff and comes to find out that my eighth great grandfather's uh Daniel Boone mm-hmm. and my or no, my seventh great grandfather's Daniel Boone. My eighth great grandmother is Helen Heron Taft, who carried the Declaration of Independence. Wow! So like, so rad. We have like, it's so cool to like know that like I have a lot of history in this country, and you know we're not, you know we were. It was just there were you know fundamental points and parts of of the building of this country, which is fucking rad. But our family from Ireland came over, and we were outlaws, like. You know, we were mm-hmm. the Heron family originally was H-E-R-O-N, I'm pretty sure. And they were a very disruptive group. <laughs> family. I love it. I love it. Well, it's a uh, it's an incredible I mean, I, I'm not surprised given the stories and the, the resilience and you have a you have an old soul which is like a really cliche shitty thing i don't i, I don't I like that term you. but I, you know I, what i mean like yeah. so and it so it fits into that like historical uh piece and and i love that you're connected to that historical piece because it, it sort of wraps into that i want to just touch on one thing which it just because there's a bu- i know i've i've listened to a bunch of your other podcasts uh-huh. with hero and um another the one Gypsy i listened Tales. to yeah and Not so yeah. So like, I know that you talk about this, this, your medical stuff and your stuff a lot, you know, and I know it's, you know, I, I have some 
I want to get into some like more present day stuff, but yeah. I also want to give the audience kind of a background of what, so I'm going to do like a, a surface level background and you can help me navigate it. But I'm going to start with that. So we know about the family history, but for when you were age one to three, your mom, there would be times where your mom would leave you with your grandmother for a few days at a time because your mom was not in recovery at that point. Yes. And yeah, she was in her addiction and and she was young. Like I, I fully understand it. A young mother in addiction. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and, even at my age, if I were loaded, <laughs> it would be the same I mean, thing. Any, yeah, it's any, yeah. any parent in yeah. the midst of their addiction, is it's understandable to look at it. It's not right, but it's understandable. It is. It's part of it. And then at age four, you had your first desmoid tumor removed, which is interesting, right? Because again, pe for people who don't know, and maybe we can stop here real quick, which is the desmoid tumor is a non-cancerous tumor except that it is malignant because no, it not, it's not no. malignant. So, but what it they acts call, like a cancer acts like a cancer. So they call it a non-malignant malignancy. It's a non-cancerous tumor that attacks the body like a cancer would. Doesn't but that it does make it, it malignant? No, because it doesn't metastasize. It doesn't spread oh, like cancer. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's actually, that's, you know, silver lining ish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it doesn't spread like cancer it does. Spread but it attacks organs and bones like cancer would. So that's that's why they call it the non-malignant malignancy is, is for it. that reason. And um, it's like one in 300 million or something, right? My mutation. So I was, I'll just give a, a quick background yeah. on, on what causes this stuff is I was yeah. born with a genetic mutation called Gardner syndrome. And the that's medical right. terminology is called FAP, which is familial autosomal polyposis. And I mutated the one gene that controls all the cell growth in my body. That's called the APC gene. And the like the causes of the disease are desmoid tumors. And like we said, they're non-malignant tumors, but attack the body as if a cancer would. Colon cancer. And then really, like those are the two prominent ones. Uh, and then other stuff of the disease are really weird stuff like decaying and rotting of teeth. Uh, extra teeth also Extra as well. teeth. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'll get into a story where I had something in my mouth. I had a, I, I went to go get my teeth cleaned, and there was a baby tooth, and they're like, "You have something blocking your your full grown tooth." And I was like sixteen or seventeen, and I ended up doing a surgery, and it was like a little, <laughs> like like a pouch, like a sack almost. And they opened it up, and there was thirty micro teeth. Oh my god! In this little pouch, you can't make this shit up. No, it was like, it's like a shark. So your cells are renegade rebels. Yes, so they grow exponentially. And then there's like, so what makes my mutation even more rare is that anytime you cut into my body for a surgery, I grow a desmoid tumor in the same oh, spot. I've heard of this. Yeah. So I have a 99% regrowth rate on desmoids. And then also on top of that, I'm non-receptive to 98% uh, of treatments in the world. So most treatments don't work for uh, my tumors, cancer. Like, uh, luckily, I beat cancer as a kid. And so I, I don't have cancer anymore. I'm a big advocate of cancer research and just, you know, spreading awareness for it uh, for all cancers in general. But uh, the misconception is that I have cancer and I don't have cancer, which I'm very grateful that I don't have it and I was able to beat it at a young age. But um, I'm just a massive advocate for all types of cancer. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, so so for this timeline, you five, you have a hernia. Six, you're con- complaining of extreme abdominal pain, misdiagnosed. It gets worse. You, your mother at seven in 1997, she reaches a breaking 98, point. 99, something around there. 899, go to a gastroenterologist and they find thousands of cancerous thousands polyps. And thousands and thousands growing on top of each other. Oh my God. And he and your diagnosis stage three, almost four colon cancer. And that's when you get the diagnosis of Gardner syndrome, which again, extremely rare. And yes. the, you guys tried some alternative stuff. And then the doctor pulls your mom aside and says, if you do not remove his colon, he's going to die. And that's going to be on you. Yep. And then age seven, you remove your large intestine and you're given a J pouch by the surgeon who actually invented the surgery. So you were able to get off a colostomy bag, which is doesn't happen. Yeah. I ended up doing a colostomy bag for six months and... Again, another just by the grace of God that this was able to happen, they they were able to reverse it. And I didn't know that that was very uncommon until I was, you know, 25, 26 years old, that that doesn't happen often. So that was age eight. eight. That was eight. Yeah. Okay. And then a couple of years later, your stomach's hard and swollen and doctors tell you it's scar tissue, but you had actually developed a 20 centimeter desmoid tumor, which is that the reason why no, oh, no doctor would operate because of the size or also the incision, the fact that you regrow at incision? Um, when is, uh, primarily the fact that the tumor was so big, it was crushing my organs. It was going to leave a massive hole in my stomach. It was just a very dangerous situation. Yeah. And at, at, at this age, it's 2004. Four, so you're what eight nine? No, by this time this was like two thousand two three. So I was like ten eleven. Okay, okay. So 10. you're you're fully aware of like I know it's for the most yeah. part. I know what's going on. And you start chemo, and then also work do work with healers and other alternative medicine. Uh, yeah. So I I was seeing healers throughout that whole time. Um, we were trying homeopathic medicine as well everything we could possibly do in conjunction with the chemo to try to get the tumor to shrink. And the first three months of doing chemo, as well as working with, you know, different healers and mediums, my tumor shrunk 43%. So we had this like massive, it was like this massive, like, you know, wave of relief of like, holy shit, it's working. You know, it's, it's, this is amazing. And for whatever reason, I don't know why I stopped working with, the healers um i just don't remember but it just slowly kind of maybe i got comfy i have no idea why but i uh yeah so we kind of stopped i kind of stopped working with healers and just continued on doing chemo and i uh within the next six months it it over doubled in size it grew back faster and stronger it was almost like it built up an immunity and yeah, and so for the next two and a half years, three years, um, we stayed on the chemo. We tried, you know, clinical trials that fucked my body up really bad. We did everything we possibly could, and the tumor just kept growing. And actually, in that time period, my mom, myself, and my mom's ex husband, we went down to Brazil and saw a healer named John of God. Um, yeah. Now there's, now there's a bunch of allocations against him, but this was oh, really? before. Yeah, this is before he had become, you know, relatively more mainstream. 
um, is very, I don't know how to, it, there was people from all around the world with yeah. all different diagnoses and I saw some crazy shit down there, like some really, really wild stuff. And it was pretty, pretty insane. Like literally in the middle of the fucking Amazon, like it was so a town, rad. like there was, you know, like an internet cafe and, you know, it, it was all dirt roads and there was a few restaurants and, and, um, places to stay, but it was pretty, it was pretty rugged, but it was fucking beautiful. And I was 13. So like, you know, I, I what did he back. do for me? He did, uh, if you're under 18, you can't do any physical operations. Um, but I saw a few actual like surgeries performed with no anesthetics, nothing. And he was, so like you'd show up in the morning and everyone would do the the prayers and the meditations and, and yeah, so you do all this stuff and then he comes out and he does this prayer and there's all these photos of all these different doctors, these deceased doctors in the background and, and all these uh, different healers and whatnot. And he would do this prayer. He would close his eyes. He'd take this deep breath in and he'd open his eyes and his eyes were a different fucking color. Stop. Like he would literally take their entity. Like it was. Like, like you saw it. You saw I it. You watched yeah. this happen. Like it was. Yeah. You're like, this is not a fucking joke. I watched this happen. Like I literally just like his eyes are brown. Mm-hmm. And. I would and flip out. They would be green, blue, fucking like oh they would change God. every single day. It would be a different eye color. And, and there would be people, you know, that would come there complaining of these different pains or this, that, and the other. And certain people were selected and, and they would, you know, sign a waiver if they can do a procedure in front of the crowd, you know, literally he would just wave his hand over their eyes and they would be out cold. Like just like, it was like they got put under anesthetic. It was nothing I've ever, like, I can't, I, it's hard to explain it because it's, right, cause it like it's doesn't, so, yeah. it's like so out of this world. And then you saw him perform a procedure on someone where. It- and pulled a tumor out. From the place that they were complaining of this pain, it literally pulled a fucking tumor out. <laughs> and then they go and sew them up. And then, like, I was just like, what? And then there was like his right hand man, yeah, is the guy that comes and, ta- and talks to you and tells you the stories. And you go there and they, they explain everything, uh, you know, like kind of what he's about and all this different stuff. And he was saying when he first came to, came there, he had this pain and, and, and some issues that like internally with his stomach and, and John of God did this, uh, procedure where they call it spiritual surgeries. Okay. Where he sits over you and, and performs almost like that you do a meditation and performs a procedure without touching you, without doing anything. And the guy thought it was a fucking joke. And so they told him when they left, they're like, Hey, don't do anything active for, you know, for seven days. You need to heal. You have stitches inside of you. And he's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, sure, I don't. Cool, bro. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. And uh, and so he just went about his life working out, doing whatever he needed to do. He's still dealing with pain. And all of a sudden he started dealing with, like, this pain arose that was just, like, undescri- undescribable and just uncontrollable. And his stomach started to blow and he was just like, what's going on? So he went to the ER, they did x-rays 
And they're like, you have stitches inside of you that have been torn and you're bleeding internally. We have to go in and they're like, how do you have stitches inside of you? And he's like, holy shit. Like D was not like, this is real. Like it was like, and it's just like, it's so insane. Like, and it's so like, most people just think that this is all bullshit, but like, yeah, I witnessed it. I did a spiritual surgery where I had to stay calm. I had to, you know, let my body heal for seven days and, and my mom did it and my stepdad did it as, you know, had something as well. Like he had, I guess, a small mass in his stomach and, and it's just did like, they, did he perform surgery on your stepdad? I don't oh, think no, spiritual surgery. Spirit, yeah. Spiritual surgery. I don't think, or he had, he had something on his back. Sorry. He had something on his back because he always had back issues, but did yeah. Like, take, so, and did you have uh, results from that experience? It, it, it seemed like, the tumor had stopped growing for like a year. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a, a long time. It's, and Yeah, it's huge. Granted, I was still doing chemo as well. But if you look at it, when I was doing chemo, the tumor was still growing. Right, so, right, right, right. You know, so take it as you will. Yeah. We know whatever you want to. If you're a huge believer in Western medicine, then you're going to go ahead and think that it was, you know, just the chemo that was working. And if you're a non-believer of Western medicine and you believe in alternative and spiritual, you know, spiritual healing, then you're going to look at it as that. And from my standpoint, I'm a believe, you know, I believe in all medicine, yeah, um, Western alternative, spiritual, holistic, every different thing and everything has its purpose and everything has its job. And so I just, I don't know which one, you know, was working the best. It was just a matter of of using everything I possibly could to try to uh, try to get that. So fast forward, I do that that case study. It really messes my body up. And then uh, let's see here. I got really sick, almost jaundicey looking. Um, my skin started turning red and kind of yellowish. I started puffing up really bad. Like my eyes just looked like it looked like I was. It looked like I was just like almost like a gnarly alcoholic. You know, right. clean. Right. And my liver was extremely, extremely scarred, um, a lot of scar tissue all over it from these treatments. And so we, it it got to the point where they were just like, hey, like the chemo is not working. Uh, the doctors in Los Angeles wouldn't perform surgery. So, you know, I had an alt- my myself, my mom, my dad and everyone, we had an ultimatum of like, what do we do? Um, we started. Researching. How long did they give you if you did nothing? I think they roughly around three months. Okay. And so my mom and everyone, we started researching different surgeons, doctors around the country, around the world. Uh, And we found a surgeon in Cleveland that was an amazing gastroenterologist, as well as one of the leading uh, surgeons to remove tumors and life-threatening ones as well. So he, he, that's 2007, right? Seven, yes, that's 2007. So prior to that, I went down to this um, this healing center, treatment center, wellness center. Uh, called- okay, so so OHI, right? Mm-hmm. So do you know LW? You sounds really familiar. He anyway, he's he was sober for a long time and lived in Malibu for a bit. Um, and uh, he and I went down to OHI to quit smoking and sugar and. It was a very interesting experience. But when you first started talking, I heard you talk about OHI. I'm like, who? No one knows about OHI. Like that's, he went to OHI. That's amazing. 
I remember them giving me a bucket. They gave me, you probably did this, but they gave me a bucket and they were like, and a tube and they were like, okay, so you're going to put the wheatgrass up your butt and do yeah, wheatgrass and enema. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you want Luckily, me to do what? I don't have a colon. So. <laughs> oh my God. It was my mom so. Did, him, though. did she? Was it, was it great? I have no idea. I wasn't yeah. about to ask her. I was 15. Yeah. I was like, I'm not asking you. are like, mom, the, I'm not. Yeah. How's how that enema, mom? How's the wheatgrass up your ass going, ma? They lit. I was like, they're, they're obsessed with wheatgrass in my ass. This like, this is, this but is like wheatgrass, wheatgrass is super healing. So, and you know, the reason why they had you do the wheatgrass enemas, right? To suck the toxins out of my liver. Yeah, because you have a vascular system that connects your liver to your colon. Right. And it speeds up the detoxification of your liver. But here's the thing. I was 20 and I went to quit smoking. So like, so this is an entire, so I we get there and I don't know what the fuck's, I'm like, let's just lose some weight, quit smoking, quit sugar, whatever. And so he and I go there, like we were really good friends and and everyone there is like sick on their deathbed, right? And like, this is like, they're using this and, and talking about like, just stuff that's so out of our purview at that point. So it was a really funny experience because we felt really, we were just being super bougie and like <laughs> bougie about being there and like, uh, it was uh, oh, the Rejuvalac oh, and, the reju- uh, you know, the, yeah. re- the like incredible amount of Rejuvalac. I saw that at a mother's market the other day and just ha- quietly laughed to myself. But it was funny because we were just so we were kind of out of place because people were there for like serious healing. And we were like, we want to quit smoking and lose some weight. <laughs> You'll lose some weight. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, but it's it was it was an incredible it was it was really a cool place. I'm glad I'm glad that you uh, you got there. Plus at 15, it's like so much. You know, what's cool about your story, obviously, super fucking gnarly and it gets gnarlier, but you the amount of people and experiences and types of healing, like you've seen so many amazing things that you would have normally just been going to high school and, and reading your history books, you know, like, like you went to the, been a drug addict. I I did drop out and become a drug addict, but right. But like way worse. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, it's interesting. Like it's this double-edged sword where you just have this incredible life, but you did get, you did. So the tumor ended up being six pounds and six they removed pounds. that with a lot of your stomach muscle. All, and my, all my abdominal muscle was removed. All of it. All of it. Your okay. abs, my abs were, I mean, I'm gonna, start, like, I'm gonna start telling people that's what happened to me. All my yeah, abs exactly. were <laughs> no abdominal they were muscles. Out. They were cut out. <laughs> I mean, there might be like, like up. Let's see here. So like, about middle of my stomach to below my waistline. Okay, it's like some muscle well, tissue. That was what was cut out. Okay, but they so they did two reconstructive surgeries on your stomach to make it look normal, and the joke was that you had a butt stomach. Prior, no, prior to the prior to removing the tumor, the tumor, the way it grew and deformed <laughs> my fucking stomach because of the scar that was already there. I oh, literally, no. it looked like it looked like. No, I straight up here. I'm gonna send a photo to okay to Ashley, other Ashley, okay. so she can show it to you because it is fucking like when I say I had a butt stomach. Yeah, yeah, you I had, had a butt stomach. 
Like it's not like no, for like, real butt stomach. Oh, straight up. Like like a badass booty stomach. Was was it a better mm. butt? Was no, it a like, better was, butt than your actual butt? No, it was very cellulite-y. Yeah. It would, I would say it's more like cellulite, kind of gross, not that okay. attractive stomach. Or okay, not so that attractive, it, but, but... It needed some step classes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Alrighty, I'm sending these to Ashley right okay. now. Okay, so, and then the first thing you ask after surgery, when can you surf again? Um, Which was six funny. to eight months, they told me. Oh, fuck. Well, four to eight months, depending on my recovery. Granted, I just had all of my abdominal muscles cut out and uh, oh my God. replaced. <laughs> that is a full butt stomach. Right? <laughs> <laughs> told you. <laughs> I told you. Uh, well, they did a good job fixing it because it doesn't look like that now. No, it's pretty good now. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. But um, for whatever reason, I've always been able to heal pretty fast, except for this past 18 months. I, my body just decided to stop wanting to heal fast. But um, I was back in the water surfing at six weeks. Wow. I'm sure the doctors were... Aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. I was like, cool, great. Um, okay, so like, then... I still had like my... Like like the wound was like just barely oh, closed. Oh, I like... I can't even. I'm as a do- as like I imagine the doctors being like, "Dear Lord." Um, Luckily, they're in Cleveland and not. In Los yeah, Angeles. exactly, exactly. But you know, at the same time, like I think it speaks to well. Number one, you were very young, so healing is easier the younger you are, and, and you're also, resilient, and also your mindset. And fuck, like live life, man. Like if you waited to live life every time you got like till you weren't sick, you know who knows what that would look like. So exactly. I think I get it. Okay. So then, so during all of this time, your mom is coping by taking pills, which I do not fucking blame her at all. Neither do I. And she, you, you are like the most, she was like the most functioning addict and alcoholic that you've ever seen. Right. So pretty I mean, damn close to, to, to having it, having her, her schedule dialed. Of yeah. Using. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was pretty good. Yeah, because she had to show up for you, so I can see. And, and two other kids. And two other kids, right? And so, and then, so this is an interesting thing, and I have some questions about this, which is that a big part of your story is how your community has shown up for you, and and I do know this about Malibu, like it's a very tight community. And which is which is really Laguna Beach is like that too. It's like really, it's a really cool. It's a really cool community and it it seems I don't know from I'm not from SoCal but I lived in LA I went to UCLA and lived in LA for a while and it seems very like bougie but it was I actually find Malibu to be really down to earth um, yeah. which which it was an interesting I, that was surprised me It's yeah I mean I mean our, it has its places right but like 100% like I mean and and any place is going to have that like we were saying earlier, like some bit of gentrification and there's going to be this new money that are, you know, it's going to come in. Our family is, is old Malibu, you know, it's ranch Malibu. It's not wealthy Malibu. It's not, you know, multi-million dollar home Malibu. And so with that being said, the families that are still left there, you know, that are still around and that have known my family and watched my family grow up, 
through multiple generations. And then people that have moved in as well, you know, say like yeah. the 80s, 90s, to early 2000s, also watched, you know, yeah. me grow up. And, and, and yeah, like it, Malibu rallies really like the, there's something about that town that comes together when it's truly a time of need. I mean, like totally the fires. I mean, you landslides. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it happen yeah. several times. And, and I actually first heard about your story. I was, so I'm in Orange County and I got sober in 2006 and you know, kind of in the SoCal sobriety scene. Uh-huh. And I remember there were concerts for you. Um, and contest. a hearing of, a yeah, contest and with, the, with concerts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And being held like, and I remember money being, re- and I would hear about that just as someone sober in Orange County. So it was definitely, yeah, like it was definitely, and I would hear like, Oh, they're raising money for, I feel like the smut peddlers are like some punk rock bands way back. I wish the smut peddlers fucking played. That'd be so <laughs> rad. Maybe I mean it was something. I don't know. It, that, that's but, what. But naked on a big wheel came out first song. Oh my god, I'd be so pumped, dude. I I can't I can't remember what it was, but I was like, all right, they're really pulling together. I'm but, trying to so, think of who we had like a like big name. It was, it was early. It was probably like 2007, six, seven, eight, 2007 nine. was the first. We so we so Valster, Freedom Artist, um, Skylar Peak, which used to be Sicky Dicky Productions, they would put on shows and concerts and whatnot. They created the Malibu Invitational, which was an invitational only professional surf contest at uh, Surfrider, and uh, and it was a shortboard you know contest, which is very uncommon for that you know location and across the street was the malibu inn and they would uh yeah it was friday we'd have you know the opening party typically at duke's malibu and then saturday mm-hmm. was like the big the big rager and you know like it was crazy the first few years was wild like there was like two-story scaffoldings on the beach and like it was proper like we had like professional judges and really top name professional surfers coming and huge sponsors. And it was like, it was so yeah. crazy. It was so And insane. all the pop, all the proceeds went to you, yeah, your, and, your and, medical stuff. Yeah. And it was mind boggling. And, and I'm not going to lie. Like I, like that type of shit definitely went to my head as a kid, you know? And, and I probably built a, my fiance can attest to this. If she was here, she would, you know, tell you guys that, I built an ego for sure, like a big ego. Like I was this untouchable kid that I can look back at now and and identify my, you know, as identify as this kid that literally I felt untouchable. And then so fast, just moving forward again, the community in Malibu, we were uh, put in touch with a doctor in Germany. Um, her name was Dr. Jakobs. Um, she was Farrah Fawcett's doctor when Farrah Fawcett was going through her cancer treatments. And I had to sit down with her at Cher's house in Malibu for the first time. And we went over if her treatments would be right for me, so on and so forth. And then in December of 2007, um, after the big surgery, I ended up going to Germany to uh, do stuff that the FDA wasn't approving stem cell therapy, uh, mm-hmm. white blood cell therapy and immunotherapy. And yeah, so we flew over there and, 
instantly, uh, you know, we did something called a blood sensitivity test that we tested all different treatments on my body uh, or test my blood against all different treatments and realized that everything that I had been doing wasn't, wasn't, gonna work. wasn't actually working and hadn't worked. Um, and that kind of explained why the tumor was continuing to grow um, on all these treatments. And we found, you know, crazy things that actually were, I was receptive to, like uh, like an anti-malaria shot actually mm. worked to stop the growth of future desmoids wow. and high doses of vitamin C, which mm-hmm. that's, you know, great for anyone, but it was also really effective in stopping uh, the growth and killing future desmoid cells. I'm trying to think of other stuff. And then also too, they did a, it's a, it's kind of like a, it's immunotherapy where they took out about 26 vials of blood and they sent it to Italy and they spin your blood to mm-hmm. get your white blood cells. And then they inject it back into you. Something that uh, it's funny. I remember like years later when Kobe tore his Achilles, uh, Achilles tendon, he went to Italy to do the same treatment that I was doing like five years prior. And I was like, holy shit, like that's fucking crazy. Yeah. And yeah. it was actually with, you know, I'm pretty um, 99% positive. It was the same lab that was, that we were sending my blood to. So it's incredible. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool to look at that. Do you, so like when I did, I was doing um, some research for our, our interview. And when I looked you up online, I found so many different fundraising things from years and years ago Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, 2013, lots of different things. And how much money do you think you have raised in over the course of your life in order to like, if you were to guess over the course of your life in order to, um, fund medical treatment, uh, upwards of half a million. I would say, okay. I mean, I would think more, I, I, but, I but yeah, I'm trying to think, yeah, I mean, I've been really, I'm really good at crowdfunding, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. I, I guess my story is, you know, it's, um, I wouldn't necessarily say relatable, but people feel attached to it. Mm-hmm. I think maybe because I'm very personable and I, uh, yeah, I'm a very personable person and I and I try my hardest to try to connect with anyone that does donate and you know, talk to them, hear, you know, hear what they have to say, what they're going through or or why they want to donate in um certain aspects like that. And yeah, like I I I've always said this even as a kid is like I'm I'm the luckiest man in the world. Like I truly am. Like I've been given way more in my life than I should have been. I live on borrowed time and, and my life has been so beautiful. And like I said, like I, I've had more opportunities than I should have been given in this life. And, and is that ever people, overwhelming to you? Yeah. Like I would, cause I would feel like a lot, I'm, of, a lot of internal guilt. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like to me, like I'm just thinking from my perspective, right? Which I haven't been in your situation, so I don't know. But I would think, like I, I struggle. I would struggle with being like I struggle with how much money my parents put into treatment for me. You know, like and and also what that 
in for me, what that the resources that took away from my sisters and not that that happened for you, but like, I mean, but it ultimately very similar. It took away from time from my, my siblings. Yeah. yeah. Like, and like, I have guilt about that. Do you have thoughts so about that? Much, I, yeah. I, it's something that I, I deal with. I wouldn't say on a daily basis necessarily anymore, but um, something I, I it's, it definitely weighs heavy on my mind a lot. Yeah, like I, I find myself sitting in a lot of guilt, especially over the years and and particularly in this past year and a half, you know, uh, someone created, I, actually, I, my fiance, I want to say someone, my fiance. Just, <laughs> we'll I, cut that out. <laughs> it, it, uh, well, no, because like it was it was during it, it was very during a very dark time in the hospital yeah. and and yeah, I the last thought, 18 months for you have, I mean, seriously, Lion, I was like. I would see these updates from your mom and I was like, I was scared to look. I was like scared to look online. It was, it was this past 18 months has been the the most difficult part of my journey I've ever experienced, you know, by far the most difficult part of my journey thus far, but you know, I'm able to continue pushing forward. And so I just have a lot of gratitude for life every day and, how, how, how do you like, how does the guilt play into that? How does like, how do you, cause I, I feel like, like one of the standout things about your story, right. Is PMA positive mental attitude. And like you and your family work so hard on staying in this positive mindset, which I think is rad, but I also am like, how, like, how the fuck do you do that? Do you ever have, do you ever are, are like, no, dude, I'm not in a positive place. Like, this blows and you know like no yeah you you know like how do you do that you have to it's it's a matter of it's a matter of taking whatever emotion yeah is present and and sitting with the emotion i mean that's what i've learned i've learned that through sobriety i've learned that through you know dealing with a lot of the shit throughout my life is just like i can't control what comes you know what emotion comes in i can sit with it i can accept it and then i can let it pass because i know that it's temporary i know that emotion's temporary i know that you know i'm going to feel something different whether it's in an hour whether it's in 24 hours whether it's in a week no matter what it is it's it's going to it's going to pass right like you know, nothing in, in this life is temporary. I mean, nothing in this life is, is permanent. Life itself isn't permanent. You know, we're going to all die one day. It's just a matter of, of finding finding the strength to just get through those dark times. And, and sometimes in the darkest times, like, I have to look at, I have to look at uh, the, the smallest bit of light that I, that I can find. And I guess that I've been, you know, I've been very fortunate to be able to see the other side of negative times. You know, I can find little bits of light and just grip that. Hold on to it, yeah. And just hold on to it and and use that as my motivation of like, okay, like there's some there's some bit of positive, you know, there's something positive out of this, whether it's we now know that that doesn't work. And that's the only thing that I can take positively from the situation is that, okay, we're not going to do that one again. Like that's behind us. What do we have to focus on next? You know, like what's, what, you know, what's the next option that we have. And when it got down to there became, you know, there came a point where 
I had no option. I had one. I mean, no, not oh no, no options. I had one option, and that's the one that I'm doing right now. Is it's not eating and getting. You're all not my, eating or drinking at all whatsoever for a year. Is I that mean, right? Look, I've slacked a little bit. I've had some. I've had some shit to drink. I haven't, and I've, and for for a while, I was chewing and spitting out food just to get taste and flavor, and I would accidentally swallow some shit, and like it would cause a lot of pain, like a lot of pain. And so, you know, now I'm like no chewing and spitting, none none of that shit. And I drink a little bit of water to take my, you know, take my medicine, whatever I have to take orally, and uh, and just to wet my mouth at times. Like throughout this interview, I probably taking like four sips of you know little sips of water just to wet my mouth but uh for the most part yeah i mean it's six months to a year so i'm hoping we're on the shorter side obviously one i have a wedding in october (laughs) so and i was i was for the most part in charge of of doing the catering so i picked (laughs) up the food the irony. The irony in it is that like it's I picked out the food that I might not be able to eat at my wedding. So Yeah. Yeah. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder, love me some green tea, golden grind turmeric latte blend, and prana chai original blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The turmeric latte blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with a cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. Do you, have you ever like you know, again, forgive me for my comparisons because they're, you know, they're just my, my mild version of all the things. But, you know, what I like, I've been in pain before, like physical pain to the point where I like didn't want to live anymore and was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like if this is the quality of life or, and I've been in emotional pain where I felt that way. Like if this is the, if this is, you know, around being a drug addict and alcoholic, like I don't want to fucking battle my head every day. I just don't want to do it. And I've had those thoughts where I'm like, it would just be easier for everyone and myself. They're not waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're not waiting. You know, like if I just, you know, went out, you know, ended this, Mm -hmm. how uh, do you not 
have, has that not been a consideration? How, how, how do you fight those thoughts? Because what we, you know, we also didn't touch upon, but we've sort of mentioned it is that you, you have, you know, struggled with alcoholism and you're sober. And so during, you know, at a certain part of this, part of how you coped was using drugs and alcohol, and then you, you ended up getting sober. And so you're also (laughs) dealing with the mental health stuff, right? So how does that, like, how do you, you know, it's hard enough just being an alcoholic, let alone physical pain. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be lying if there was times where I just didn't want to give up, you know, it's, yes, I, I try to embody and portray this very, very positive mental attitude, you know, the, as much as I can, but I'm human, you know, like you're going to have dark times. You're going to be, you know, in a dark hole with those, you know, suicidal thoughts and, and wanting to give up. Like there's been a lot of times this past year and a half where I've never been closer to death and I've never felt like there was, there was a, a handful of times where I felt like I was closer to death than I was to living, yeah. whether that's physical or mental or both at the same exact time. And, and yeah, like, you know, the thought that goes to your head is like, like you said, like I would, everyone else would be, you know, out of pain if I wasn't going through this anymore. But then I personally start thinking, you know, I'm like, how fucking selfish is that? Right. You know, how selfish is me just wanting to, all these people that have put so much fucking effort into keeping me alive for me to give up. But that was my other question. That was going to be my other question. Do you ever feel like you owe it to people? Like you owe it to people to try. And in some ways, cause like I've done, even I feel like that, like, you know, that's been, it's like, I can't fucking give up. I've, I owe it to these people to, you know, yeah. to, you know, put my best foot forward. And, and I would imagine, but I would also see that as like, you know, people have been following your story for so long. They've, you know, we all, we all tune in on Instagram with you and your mom and your family. And, and even, you know, you and I don't know each other and, but we know each other through friends and stuff. And, and, you know, I would feel like in some ways that's a burden. Um, It can be at times because you feel like you don't have an out. Right. Right. You, you know, if, if you wanted to, and I'm not right. saying I want to, that's right. Not but if saying, but like there's moments where, yeah, I mean, there's more moments where it just seems like there's just so much weight on my shoulders and the feeling that, you know, the ultimatum of, am I ever going to have a normal life again? Yeah. You know, am I ever going to have a, you know, be able to get it back in the ocean again, which is granted, you know, that is a luxury that I've, I've been given in my life. And, but am I able to be, you know, the husband that my, you know, that my wife, you know, not expects me to be because she doesn't expect me to be anything but who I am. And she will always be there for me, but that I expected myself to be right. for her. Your and, standards. Yeah. And the son and the friends and, you know, there's that fear. I mean, shit, I, I, all of a sudden was yesterday, like I was having a fucking great day. And then out of nowhere, I just started to slowly spiral into this like kind of dark mindset of like, I'm never going to be able to fucking live normal life again. 
you know, right. and I look at people and I start getting resentful mm-hmm. and, and yeah, that's another thing too, is like a lot of shit that goes through my head, just like any other alcoholic is, yeah. you know, we're not good enough. One, that's the first thing. And no one knows how I feel. I'm all alone. Which in your case, you know, you could justify that, I right? Totally like justify it. But then I also need to tell myself to shut the fuck up and man the totally. fuck up because I have a life beyond my wildest dreams that I need to fight for. And I have so many people in my life that love me that I want to be there for them just as much as they want to be there for me. But when you're in those dark thoughts, none of that fucking matters. Right. Like none of it, <laughs> that's none the of problem. It, right. None of it matters. And any alcoholic that's listening to this knows that. They know mm-hmm. that feeling. They know yep. that feeling of just it's like it's like utter sorrow for yourself that you can't get rid of. Yep. And do you allow yourself to have like little, like, oh, this is what I tell my sponsees. I'm like, okay, how long of a pity party do you need? Right. They call me and I'm like, how long do you need? You need to throw a pity party. I get it. How long do you need? You know, I need 24 hours. I need five hours. I need 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, you have that amount of time. Go fucking party it up in your little pity party. Feel sorry for yourself. Cry in the mirror. Watch yourself cry, whatever you need to do. And then call me back. And then we're going to get the fuck over it and we're going to, you know, whatever. But like, I think it's important. Sometimes you just have to throw yourself this little pity party and be like, I feel so fucking sorry for myself. Yeah, no, I fucking (laughs) love that. And that that goes back to what I was saying about feeling every emotion that comes in. And also too, it's another perfect example of no emotion is permanent. Like it really isn't. Like, I, especially I if you give it a time, like I found like giving it a time, like, you know, thinking about it, like, and giving it a time, even my, everyone who gives themselves 24 hours doesn't usually need 24 hours. Like they don't want to be in it for 24 hours. Right. It's miserable. But like you're, you're, it, it gives you this feel, this psychological, you know, mindset of like, it's not going to be forever. And I think that's the scary part about getting into these dark places. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you on that. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's for me, for me it's I just kind of just ride it. And I woke up this morning and I felt grateful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was that literally is it. Like it's it's cliché to say, but you know, and another thing for me too is like I so saw every night that I go to sleep, no matter what I'm feeling, what's going on, whether my fiance and I are in an argument or anything like that, like I have to for me have to say, I love you. And I have to give her a kiss. And someone taught me that in the early parts of my relationship with her, Hmm. um, that are, you know, they're both of them are in sobriety as well. And I was like, I will never go to sleep angry. Or even if I am angry, I'll never not say, I love you and say, and give her a kiss. And for me, that kind of almost resets my brain a little bit to with whatever I'm going through, whether I'm in a dark place I know that there's love in my life mm-hmm. and there's positives in my life. I like that. And when I wake up, if I'm still in that feeling and then those thoughts, I will deal with it in that moment. And for me, I'm very vocal about what I'm going through. So if I'm, if I'm feeling very dark and down, I'm not going to hide from it and just keep it within myself. I'm going to talk about it. Because I want to let it out. I need to let it out because I don't want to sit with it. And I don't want to, like, you know, I don't want that to be 
this cloud over my head that's just going to continue getting darker and darker and darker. You know, I need that to dissipate. So for me, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's about being conscious of what emotions come through, feeling those emotions, letting them, you know, sit with me, understanding what and why I'm feeling that way, letting the emotion out, talking about it, whether it's crying, talking, you know, screaming, punching a pillow, anything that I need to do to get it out, you know, because I don't have my outlets, you know, I, like right. for me, I grew up riding motorcycles and yeah. surfing, you know, like I have surfed three Active. to five days, three, three to five days a week since I was, you know, since I really started surfing and I was at, you know, six years old and I'm 29 in a month. So that's fuck 23 years of surfing every you know, like it's something that's like my life and riding motorcycles is another huge outlet. It's my form of meditation. And another big one for me, like I'm, I'm very like a action sports orientated and snowboarding. Like those three things are huge in my life. And I've been stripped of those for the last year and a half. And so I don't have any sort of outlet. And a lot of the time I was stuck in a hospital by myself for, you know, 30 yeah, days, during COVID, 40, right? 50, yeah, there was 60 days in the hospital. There was, you know, I spent 325 days in the hospital in the last 19 months. And I would say 250 of those days were through COVID that I spent by myself. And certain times I was allowed one visitor per day. But there was, you know, periods of, you know, 40 days of just being in my hospital room by myself. And so you really, really, really learn to sit in yeah. and feel your fucking emotions because <laughs> they ain't going anywhere and you have no one to distract you. You and your feelings are not going anywhere. No, they're becoming your best fucking friend and your worst fucking nightmare. Oh, my God. What about you're an incredible photographer? What about photography? How, you know, I was in my head, I was like thinking... Of, like you could, you could have, and I don't probably not because of COVID, but in my head, you could take these like incredible, like photojournalistic photos in the hospital of I like, of like what's going down and like, you know, I don't know, things like that. But, but photography is a, is an incredible outlet as well. And, and something is. you've been passionate about. I've been, I, so photography to me is another massive thing. And I don't know why, but like something about this past year and a half has felt like it sucked the the joy out of shooting photos out of me. Yeah. And I mean, there's been a few times that I have gone and shot photos and, and it made me so fucking happy. Right. But, but to compare it to what I felt prior to all of this, I would be excited all the time. And I would always have cameras in my car and yeah. cameras with me. And the fact that I didn't have a camera in the hospital, not once did I bring a camera into the hospital with me or have anyone bring it to me or drop it off. I don't know. Like it, it bums me out that that's what happened. And like I said, like when I shoot photos, it does make me happy, but I don't have as much of the drive as I did mm -hmm. prior to dealing with this medical journey. I have a, like an armchair theory about that. Bring it on. I want to hear it. Okay. Maybe it's because at this stage in the game, you want to be doing things that are like in the photos instead of behind the camera. Like it's 
like this part of this phase of your life, you're like, no, I, I, I need to be, I don't want to be an observer. I'm, I'm uh, you know, it used to be cool to be an observer for you. And now it's like, all you can think about is being in them. Yeah, I think that as well. Also too, it's when the passions that I've had have been stripped from me. Yeah. That's all I want to do. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I recently got into riding Harleys with my stepdad and I've been able to do that with, you know, with everything that I'm going through. And that's kind of the, one of my new outlets that I found that is really, you know, good for my mental health and good for, you know, physical and everything like that. And we went on a ride on Sunday and I brought a film camera with me. And so I was trying to, you know, like when we were on long straight roads, I was trying to shoot photos of the guys riding and stuff like that. And it slowly started to reinvigorate a little bit, but yeah, I I agree with you. I really do. It's, it's like this unconscious feeling of like, I want to be the subject rather than Mm, shooting the subject. Yeah. It's like, put me in coach. Exactly. It's the (laughs) narcissist, it's the narcissism in me that's coming out. And it's also the feeling that I want to do the things that I love so much. And so you know, I want them to be documented. So I have the memory of being able right. to do that during these times. Right. Rather than just shooting them and seeing other people doing the things that I love. Right, right, right. Like that seems to me to be, to make complete sense. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a great perspective you had on that because that's, it's so true. And I didn't think of it that way, but I mean, that's really what it is, is when the things that I love are taken from me. And that's another thing too. It's like my fiance is like, she wants me to go ride and she wants me to be able to go surf. But she's, you know, and I'm so lucky that, you know, I have her support in that sense because she's like, look, that's the man I fell in love with. Right. Was the person that would go ride and race motocross. that would go surf all the time that, you know, that's what makes you happy. And that's what you've done your whole entire life. And she goes, I never want to be the person that takes that away from you and takes that joy that, that I fell in love with the way. And so right. it's just a matter of, you know, and I, I got to go ride motocross a little bit a couple of weeks ago with my, I have a drain in my stomach and I have a pick line on my arm and, and I deal with a lot of pain still. And another thing I want to touch on too in a second is, is having to take pharmaceuticals. Yeah. yeah. That's been a, that's been a mind fuck more. That's been more of a mind fuck than a lot of other things. But, uh, but yeah, going back to being able to ride motocross, it, it finally opened my eyes that, okay, I can do some of these things with the the ailment that I have currently. And until I'm fully healed, I can still do what I love to, you know, some things of what I love to do at a scaled back version. You know, I still mm-hmm. get to have a little bit of that joy and it's just finally starting to come back, you know, nearly two years, you know, two years after the fact of dealing with all the shit that I've dealt with in this past year and a half. And also too, like we've been talking about, you know, me being in the hospital, what's caused me to be in the hospital is from a chemotherapy that I was taking, there was a side effect that I just, you know, you see 150 side effects. Um, yeah. When you, when you look at chemo, <laughs> everything, yeah, on everything, but specifically chemotherapy, there's so many different things that, you know, could possibly happen. And there's these ones that you look at and you're just like that, you know, it's not going to happen. And this one was the weakening or tearing of your stomach lining and bowel walls. And 
I mean, fuck, the, the odds of that happening are pretty rare. You know, that's like a severe side effect. And um, and that's what happened. And I I created something called a fistula, which is a tear in my in my intestinal wall. And um, and it created an abscess. I went septic. Um, we couldn't figure out what it was. There's there. I just wanted to throw in this. There was a story. So you went septic once at normal level at normal levels. It's 0.2 to 0.4 at two, you're septic and you were at 37 and survived. That was the first, that was the first one. The first one. Right. And how the fuck do you survive that? I have no idea. Again, that's, that's just, yeah, it's, that's my higher power. That's something greater than myself. Like I, that was the first fistula. It's the same fistula that's or this been, first op- that was the- that was the first opening. Um, Jesus, that's yeah, gnarly. yeah. So it's it's something called the procalcitonin level. It's a bacteria level in your blood, right? And um, yeah, I same. I can't even imagine like literally being the doctor looking at that and like going, "What? Like, yeah, I, oh, why? Are you, why are you alive right now? Oh my fucking god! You know? Yeah. So that happened. Uh, the first time around, and then pretty much the second time, it got so bad. I was hospitalized for this for pain. They, I was at one hospital. I was at St. John's, and they couldn't figure out what the what the cause was. You know, they knew that I was septic and I was sick, but we couldn't figure out what it was. And and the first time that I went in, that I had you know the levels were that high, they couldn't figure it out either. They just put me on antibiotics. I got you know, I got my strength back and then they're like, okay, you're good to go home after like a week. And, um, and then the second time it happened, we couldn't figure it out again. And then finally we started doing research and found the specialist and this doctor who does interventional radiology. You know, we met with him and I was in so much pain and it was so bad that I couldn't walk. Um, so I was in, I had to be wheeled, you know, I was in a wheelchair and I met with him, you know, he started doing research and that week of leading up to it getting really bad. So I was starting to get these rigors and fevers and rigors where you get ice cold and shake uncontrollably. And then it would lead, you know, we'd throw blankets on me and I could not get warm. I was so fucking cold. And like, it's almost like having a seizure, like you shake so bad and uncontrollably and it hurts. And like, what we didn't know is that I had like a 14 centimeter abscess oh my and God. fully oh my obstructed God. my small bowel. And I was continuing to eat because we didn't know what was going on. And so it was, I was oh. blocking up. And so nothing was oh. passing through and not having a large intestine and colon, you go to the bathroom a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't going to the bathroom and I... Which at least probably told you something. Like yeah, we where, knew something was yeah. really wrong. Like we knew something was really wrong. And the amount of pain that I was in, like I was in so much pain, like I couldn't sleep. Like I literally, I think I slept like, I don't know, maybe like five hours in seven days. Fuck, dude. Like I could not sleep. I could not fall asleep. I was in so much pain and I was just. Which was makes it so much worse. Yeah, like it was so bad. And then it built up to the point where one night at like 2 a.m., I my rigor started and I just was like, fuck. And then my fever I made my way to the somehow made my way to the bathroom and I was in the bathroom and my fever got so bad that I lost my eyesight. I lost vision and 
And then I was getting flashes of vision and everything was spinning while I was in. And I started hallucinating so bad. And I was butt naked, just pouring sweat, could not stop sweating, couldn't move. And I was just puking, like projectile vomiting. And my mom woke up, my stepdad, you know, and they came in and called 911 because it was just so bad. And after it started, you know, after like 30 minutes of, of just this, uncontrollable literally no vision any like it was so fucked i it felt like i had fried my brain like i couldn't get oh i'm sure so you went so hot too that was a it was like 105.4 fever yeah yeah and so after i couldn't talk like i couldn't get sentences out i couldn't you know like when the paramedics showed up they were fucking these guys were such assholes like really yeah, these guys were such dicks. Like they were so fucking lame. Because I've had so many amazing paramedics throughout yeah. my life with injuries like breaking bones and having to yeah. be ambulance and concussions and all this sort of stuff. But these guys are such dicks. And they're like, and my mom's like, you know, he has a really rare medical issue. Um, he's, you know, we don't know what's going on. He has been going septic. And they're like, you sure that's not an overdose? And my mom's like, no, he's beaten cancer he's dealing with the life-threatening ailment they're like this looks like an overdose and i was like it's not a fucking overdose and i couldn't talk like yeah. I, I literally like i couldn't get words out yeah and so they're asking me like you know my social they're asking me like what you know all these different things and i couldn't they didn't just put you in the ambulance no and then finally they put me on the gurney taking the ambulance I was like, I have a port. Can you access my port? They're like, we can't access your port. And I was like, my veins are really bad. Like, I can't. Yeah. My veins are shit. My veins have always yeah. been shit. Like, my veins would, IVs would fall out every other day in the hospital. I, oh you know, I spent God. like months in the hospital as a kid. And it's been shit since I was like six years old. And they were just fucking so lame. And I was so scared because I thought that I was, I thought that I was never going to come back. Right. And I remember when they were wheeling me out of my mom's. Thank my mom's God they house. didn't give you Narcan either because that would have. Blocked all opiate receptors, and that would have been a fucking nightmare, too. Oh, my God. And I was in so much pain, and I was just, like, so confused. And I remember, like, when they were rolling in my mom's house, there's a mirror by our front door, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I was just like, that. I don't recognize who I am. Yeah. Like, I don't recognize, and I was just so scared of, like, like, what the fuck is happening? And then come to find out that doctor that we went and met figured out what was wrong from all the scans from the previous hospital that they couldn't figure out Mm. and saw the abscess. And then, so they had to put an NG tube in, pump my stomach from everything out, uh, put me on TPN, which is what I'm doing right now, which is just getting nutrients and nutrition through your IV. Yeah. And I had to have drain tubes put in. But it kept, so like you did that, it drained, but it kept, the abscess kept coming back, right? So we didn't know the severity of the of the fistula and we thought it closed after i was in the hospital for 30 days and we thought it right. closed um and so they, they took the drains out or they no. were letting it heal yeah or they theoretically theoretically letting it heal and so they pulled the drains out sent me home and then that's where the spiral started and it just it was just in out in out same things you know these 104 105 fevers hallucinations go in the hospital be in the hospital two weeks to a month fucking come out and then i left the drain in for seven months yeah. at home so i had a drain in for seven months last year 
and then finally i remember you know it just it just in and out in and out, out and then finally we did some tests you know after doing ct scans they're like they're like and doing another test as well officialograms where they inject contrast to the drain to see if it goes into the bowel and they're like it, everything seems like it's closed up and so um i think it was like What's the, is it Memorial Day weekend? Is that the one after summer? That's Labor Day. All right, Labor Day weekend. I went on, I did that test on Friday or Thursday. Yeah, Thursday. And um, my doctor said they left the drain in as a placeholder because he goes just in case something else. And I was like, but you're telling me that everything's closed up and everything's good. And, and, uh, and he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, like if you're telling me this, then I want to, I want this shit out of me. Right. And they're like, okay, well, you come in Monday. And I was like, I was like, I know how to pull all this stuff out of me. Like I've watched you guys do it a hundred yeah. times. Like by now I'd already had like, I've had like, you know, at that point I probably had like eight different drains put in me and I probably had or 10 different drains and I've had them replaced so many different times and pulled out. So I knew how to pull everything out. And, you know, I called a few of my doctors and asked their approval and they're like, we don't necessarily approve it. And granted, they're like, you are our most rebellious patient we've ever experienced. They also can't, they actually can't, like, like they cannot give you permission without being subject to the potential of a lawsuit, too. So I could see why they were like, mm. Yeah, I get it. But I was like, I'm not a per- type of person that's yeah. going to sue anyone. That's just yeah. not me. Like, if I break my arm on your property, that's fair yeah. play. That was my fault. <laughs> Like fucking my dumbass broke it. It's no one else's fault. So did they give you permission? Kind of. Yeah. And so I had a pick line in and I had a biliary drain in and I pulled my biliary drain out and it was like the hottest weekend of the year. And we had a bunch of, not a bunch, cause it was obviously during, still during COVID, but we had like our tight knit group. Yeah, family friends over at my mom's house and she had a pool and I didn't submerge in water in like in eight months or nine months. And then I had my mom pull my pick line out and, um, and I went and jumped straight in the pool and it was like the best feeling in the world. And, and yeah. And I thought that I was, you know, that was it. That was, that was the end of it. And sure shit a week later I was back in the hospital and it's continued. And then the beginning of this year was the worst one yet. Well, I mean, it got really bad. And all. Like we tried to sew it, sew up the fish oil. We tried to put, right. a, we tried to put a, um, what am I blinking on? Um, a stent in it, like a big stent. And it ended up migrating down my stomach, oh, for um, fuck's sake. which was oh. so painful. Thank God we were able to get it out. If not, I, I was, was going to, yeah, seriously. That's but it caused insane. some more damage in there. And, we tried, we tried every, like everything we could possibly do. We tried. And that's why I said like, you know, this is my last option that I have is, is not eating and not drinking and, and doing yeah. nutrition through an IV in hopes that my body's going to actually, you know, heal this hole in my intestine. But uh, yeah, in January, right when, right when my fiance and I moved into our new apartment, I got the Rigers out of nowhere. And I had a drain in, and usually the drain is like my, uh, is like a safety net in a sense. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, uh, the Riger started to get really bad really fast. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is gonna be a bad one. And 
then my fever kicked in and the fever, like it just went from like a hundred to 106 in like 15 minutes, like so fast. And like instantly just hallucinating. Yeah. You're like, you don't have brain damage. I, I had, I think I've had like, I've had 705, 104 to 106 fevers in the last year and a half. So I don't know how my, my brain hasn't just melted away, but yeah. And I, it got to the point where I lost my vision and I was hallucinating and I, it was almost like an out of body experience where I thought that my soul was leaving my body. Mm. Like I thought that I was, I thought that this, yeah. this was it. I thought that I was dying. Like no ifs, ands, or buts. I was like, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this, I'm leaving this earth. And again, for whatever reason, you know, my higher power was like, it's not your time to go. And you, you know, you're, you're here to stay to, to do something bigger than what I can comprehend, because obviously there's a purpose for me to be here. People with your condition, the very few that do exist, they don't live past like teenagehood, right? No. Um, some people don't, some people, it stays dormant in their body and doesn't flip, you know, doesn't cause stuff until later. Like I, okay. Like I, I've met a few people with my, you know, with the same disease and a very close mutation to mine, and they didn't have their first, you know, issue with it until they were in their, you know, mid thirties. Interesting. Okay. 30s. So it's all different for everyone. Mine just happened to be really aggressive really early, and that's just my, you know, that's just my story, my journey. What are they telling you in terms of prognosis? I mean, obviously, all prognosis. Cs are based on who knows what the fuck, right? And like, Practices. given yeah, and given given your you've beat every single one. So, um, but what are they telling you right now? Just continue doing what I'm doing. Do they say like? I mean, is it is there a possibility that you'll be able to live till 80, 90? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean there's a possibility I could die tomorrow and there's a possibility that I can live <laughs> right. for another 50 years. Right. Right. Just like you, just, just like, like anyone, yeah. just like anyone yep. in this world. And I'm not, I'm not over here banking on being here for another 50 years and I'm not here banking on being here for another 24 hours. It's just, yeah. When it's, my time it, is, it's my time. It's like a really great practice for what all of us in recovery are supposed to be like the mindset we're supposed to have, which is be in the moment and like about the moment. And you have this practice, this, you know, being forced to do that. And like, that's exactly how that's, that's the spiritual place of like, be where you want to be where you want to be right and it's, and, what's adver- it's what's advertised in sobriety it's like literally it's on every billboard in in the room right right and like it's the hardest thing to do and it's the and it's what this this experience this medical experience has brought you is the ability to like to be forced and then the practice of, of like i don't know prison. Yeah. And, and managing, you know, it's interesting when I hear you talk, like one of the things that like in business and I mean, and in in life everywhere we think about is like, we think we have to manage the short term and we have to manage the long term. We have to be looking out far enough to plan that and also managing at the same time and balance those two things, right? Balance living in the moment while also not being like, well, 
tomorrow, you know, a year will never come. So I'm never going to plan for anything, right? Exactly. Like there's, there's some sort of balance. I'm terrible at it. And, Same. You, <laughs> but like you are, you, it sounds like you have had this practice by being forced into thinking about life and what's most important and what's valuable and what's worth your time and who's worth your time and how to manage those things in a very different way than most of us have ever experienced and and young enough to be able to leave a, lead a much more present lifestyle. So like I think those of us in recovery are leading a much more present lifestyle than people who are not, you know, normies. And then you have like a level above that, like ninja status. Thank you. I appreciate in, that. <laughs> ninja living in in the present. I mean, I try. It's definitely uh, that's something that my that my fiance and I joke about. She's like plan ahead, mm. future, everything. Yeah. And I'm like, like pump the brakes. Like yeah. all we have is today, babe. Like yeah, like, tomorrow's not promised. Like I like do not like. Yes, let's plan for our future, but let's let's keep it open ended. Oh my because- god, I would. That's like I'm. I have anxiety just talking about. It. Like it's just. <laughs> yeah she hates it so much and it's so funny because yeah and she's like she's like i'm so fucking thankful that i have you to keep me grounded and yeah. I'm, like, I'm thankful that you plan our future because oh. <laughs> i sure shit ain't gonna do it <laughs> does how does she uh, well actually i want to jump to um i want to jump to taking medication and recovery how do you so like do you have to manage this horrendous pain. And one of the things that a lot of us are able to, you know, we, we try not to take medication that's going to wake the beast. I had an experience where I took, I was in the hospital and I took Dilaudid. I'll never forget this. 2007, go to the emergency room, take, they give me Dilaudid. I'm in so much pain. Dude. Okay. So here's the thing. It felt wonderful, but I, it woke up like I literally, I'll, I remember the space. I remember everything about it. They put, they put it in and I like, I felt like a dragon literally came up from my stomach through up into my, like up into my throat and like open up. Like it lit, it was like a physical manifestation manifestation of my addiction. And it like, like picked up its head and opened its eyes. It was the fucking that's crazy weirdest experience I have ever had with regard to that. Where it was because like I've had to take Vicodin. I don't give a shit about Vicodin. You know, I've had to take other pills and things in recovery for surgeries and whatnot. It doesn't bother me. But the, I, that shot of Dilaudid, man, it literally was like it just woke up and I was like, oh, like. Like as if it were opened its eyes through my eyes, and I, I, I was terrified, terrified, and and so you know. But I haven't had that experience since. Thank God. Yeah, thank um, God. Yeah, but like, how do you, you know? And usually that happens when they give you more pain medication than the pain. Like when it's because when yeah. you're in so much pain, like the pain medication is going to work the way it's supposed to. Yeah, I mean. It's funny you say like the the one shot of Dilaudid. It was probably like a milligram or half a milligram Dilaudid. Whatever it was, it was it was enough. It was it was enough to kill the pain, but also you know bring back Spike the high, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I that's been Dilaudid's been a big one in my hospital stays. 
that first one, that first hospital, that first month of hospital stay, they had me on, um, I was in so much pain. They had me on, uh, two milligrams of Dilaudid every three hours <laughs> with a one milligram breakthrough of Dilaudid every three hours. So every hour and a half, I was getting two milligram, one milligram, two milligram, one milligram. Yeah. Fuck, like, man. And, but you must, since, but you were in so much pain. Like, did you? Yeah. But then it got to the point yeah. where the pain started yeah, yeah, yeah. dying a little bit uh-huh, and it uh-huh. just continued. Yeah. 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 And it's this past, like this past year and a half, I mean, thank God, like in before COVID, I would have, I would have like my crew of AA guys bring me meetings in my mm-hmm. hospital room. Mm-hmm. And, and then I took my five-year cake at Sundowners, um, at, at Cedars. It's like a little meeting at mm-hmm. Cedars. And so I took my, and I had my NG tube in, I could barely walk. I had Fuck, to be man. walked in. I went up on stage, took my cake and spoke and. Um, I, I could barely speak because it hurt my throat so bad to yeah. speak. But um, yeah, I uh, it's been a it's been a fucking struggle though. Like it was, you know, after after that first time, they never gave me that much Dilaudid again. I don't know who who okayed that because everyone that I've told in the hospital, they're like that that's not real. And I'm like, look at my fucking chart. I mean, it's also you guys a gave concern. me that. It's also a, an overdose concern. Like that's what I was thinking. Like no, totally. I mean, they, because, they like, gave like, me at that, a certain point. That's you, a lot of fucking Dilaudid every single day with no taper. With no how long? Wait, how long? Twenty eight days of two oh milligrams my. every three uh, hours. Dude, with a one what? milligram breakthrough with zero taper. Send you home. Did you? Oh, I kicked oh. so fucking hard. <laughs> Oh, oh my god! Oh my god! I I'm, kicked, like, I'm, I'm sweating over here. I'm sweating. I kicked so hard the first time, and it's oh my god! Here's so the bad. other thing about that is that like, so like when you kick opiates, right? You shit yourself regularly, and like, so you have all these digestive reactions, which that's not useful in your case, right? Like we're dealing no. with your yeah. So that seems. Yeah, that was that was miserable. But since then, it's every single time I'm in there, it's it was. I mean, like right now, it's twenty milligram of oxycodone as my as my base medicine. Yeah, with with a one milligram dilated breakthrough, and it's gone to the point where my tolerance has built up so much to it that I'll be in like this past hospital stay. Something went wrong when they put a drain, and then they moved a drain. And my pain, I've never, like, breaking bones, like, being in car accidents. Like, I flipped in two cars. I've broken I've broken my shoulder blade. I broke that in half with my collarbone and my ribs. I'd and, like to give your mother a very big hug. <laughs> she deserves it. She deserves the hug, not what I put her through. Yeah, yeah. For, for people, people yeah, yeah. don't people don't see us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to hear us. Just so make they, sure. Yeah, she they're not going to see the sarc like my face uh, facial expressions. She deserves the hug. Yes, but like I've dealt with you know so much pain in my life, and I never felt anything remotely close to this pain. Like I couldn't breathe. I remember I woke up from the procedure, and I woke up, and I remember the first thought was like, "Oh, I have to pee," and then the pain came over and I tried to get up and I couldn't get up out of bed and I had to pee so fucking bad. And I got out of the wrong side of my bed. So all my lines, all my IV lines were wrapped around me and I was 
I was literally like straight jacketed in IV lines and I was covered in heart monitors and I was in so much pain that I couldn't breathe. Yeah. Like I could not breathe. It was like the sharpest, deepest pain where the strain was like underneath my rib cage. Oh my fuck. Like it felt like someone had a knife from the inside and they're, I mean, they kind of did. Yeah. But it felt like they had a like with the pain felt like every time I would take a breath, it was like someone had, had multiple knives inside my inside my underneath my ribs and they're trying to pry my ribs apart Mm. like that's what it felt like and that's just like a part of what the pain was and i had to pee so bad that like i couldn't breathe so i was like hyperventilating and i was trying to hold the pee in and i was just like (laughs) it's so funny now when i look at it because like my nurse one of the nurses or my nurse of that that day was like i've become good friends with all these nurses yeah yeah and so, like, I request certain nurses because we have such, like, a tight friendship. Yeah. And I was, like, pressing the call button, standing up, tied myself up within the fucking IVs. And I'm sitting there, can't breathe, and I'm just trying to hold my pee in, and I'm just squirting piss. Oh. Just, like, <laughs> pissing myself. I'm literally just pissing myself. And I'm like, oh. help, 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 Oh, God. Help. Like, so fucking bad. And so they shoot me up with two milligrams of Dilaudid. I'm still like at that point, like when I woke up, like my pain tolerance is very high. I was at like a 15 out of 10 in pain. For me, that's yeah unimaginable for an average human being. They gave me two milligrams of Dilaudid and 20 milligrams of oxycodone. It didn't fucking touch my pain. Oh my God. I think I might've moved to like a 10 out of 10 from a 15 out of 10, like still so unmanageable, like such fucked up pain like stupid like i can't even wrap my head around how much pain i was actually in like i i forgot like i've blacked it out yeah and so they put me on a 24 hour ketamine drip <laughs> yeah like straight up they put me on a, yeah. and it was the second or third time they had, had to do this to me in the hospital and this time this pain lasted for like did they take the drain out no 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 no, no. they pushed the drain further in and so it hit a nerve or something. And it was yeah, sitting on... Didn't they want to pull... They didn't want to fix the drain? It was in too optimal position to drain the fluid. Ugh. So pretty much it was like... They had... So that was intentional. It, I, it didn't like slip. No, no, no. It was intentional. They put it in further. The furthest that they had to put any drain in, deepest they had put any drain in. And it must have been sitting on like my... Di- like it must have been pushing on my diaphragm or sitting on some sort of... I, I mean, there's a million And they things. needed it there. Yeah, they needed it there. And so it was just like, try to deal with it for as long as you can to try to get as much fluid as we could out. So they put me on the ketamine drip and I was on that ketamine drip for, ended up being on it for two weeks of, I was getting 0.3 milligrams an hour of ketamine and still getting 20 milligrams of oxycodone <laughs> every three hours and a milli, one milligram shot of Dilaudid every three hours as well as oxycontin, 10 milligrams, three times a day, gabapentin, three times a day, robaxin, three times a day, and Tylenol, three times a day. And I was still at like an eight out of 10 in pain. Like it was just, the pain just would not go away. Like it was so bad. But it also attests to how much of a tolerance I've built up to pain meds, which is so fucked because they're, like, I don't use them to get high, obviously. I use them to combat pain. But when you've had to use them in the hospital for such long periods of time, yeah. you know, 
20 days, 40 days, 60 day periods. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then having to taper off them when you get home, they give you oxycodone to try to taper off them. You build up such a high tolerance to the stuff that's supposed to, you know, really work. And it's like taking an Advil. It doesn't, it doesn't make me high. My sponsor always told me, he goes, one every four hours is taking as prescribed four every hour is using. Right. He okay. goes, these medicines, like this medicine, everything that you're taking, he goes, it has a job, just like you have a job. Your job is to heal. Its job is to allow your body to relax enough so you can heal faster. Right. And my whole thing in my head is like, this is just as much needed as the drain in my stomach is for me yeah. to not be tense and not be tight, you know, allow my body to actually do what it's supposed to do to take away the pain so that, you know, I'm not adding more trauma to what's going on. The, but the mental battle that it's conveyed yeah, is that has been one of the most difficult things to overcome just as much as like, and it goes and that falls into like that dark depression type thing right. of when I was in the hospital was it's, I feel so guilty taking these things because I don't want to be taking any of this shit, but it's, I'm at a point where I have to be taking it because of the amount of pain that I'm in. But so do you, so is it, is the guilt and the difficulty around, see, see what I experienced was the difficulty. I was in a lot of pain Mm -hmm. and so I didn't have guilt around taking, you know, getting a shot of Dilaudid. The difficulty was around what it did. Yeah, mentally. Mentally, like literally to my alcoholism. Like it was like, because, you know, I, I'm a junkie. So like, or I was a junkie. And yeah. so like that woke that. Uh, yeah, you know, it's that similar yeah, feeling yeah, to what you sim- felt. There was a needle involved. I mean, all the all the goods, right? So yeah. like, so for you, you know, is it about, is it in your head? Is it like, I'm in an abstinence-based program. This doesn't feel abstinent just because it's confusing. Or is it about the voice starting to talk again? Both. Okay. Okay. Very much both. Because there was times where there were certain times where my pain would be at say a seven or an eight. If they gave me a 10 milligram pill, I would still be in pain. If they gave me a 15 milligram pill, I would fucking nod for two hours. Right. And the difference of that, the five milligrams, yeah. it was like... The but, mental- and then there's that enjoyment and you're like, oh, is this a relapse because I like it? But I don't like nodding. Like, I don't like <laughs> I don't like that type of shit. So for me, it was like, it sucked. <laughs> right, right. Because like, I would be like, I would just start nodding and I, I don't like nodding in front of people. Luckily, it was, uh, it was a lot of time alone. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Oh so my God. it's pretty much like using in a sense, but but like, sense. but I hate like I, you know, and it would be these battles of like if if I do the right thing in my mind and take the less amount, I'm still going to be in pain. Right, right. If I take the, the more, more, the more it's going to kill my pain, but I'm also going to get very, very high. high. Right. And there was questioning yourself, right? Like what your motive. Yeah. Like, am I doing this to get high? Right. Or do I really, or am I doing the, yeah. And and it's a fucking very, 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 very fine line. Yeah. Of what the difference is in that sense. And, and what, and the shit that plays in your head, 
I'd also be like, I deserve relief. That's what my head would tell me. Another thing too. And then, yeah. And so like, then you go into the justification aspects of it. Do I, I don't even know if that's wrong. You know, like, I mean, you do deserve relief, but like, but in what, what sense of the word relief are you going at? You know, are you going at like, let's fucking check out relief from everything. (laughs) You know, like, I mean, but that's, that's that's the addict in me. Totally to wanting to check out from everything in reality of what I have to go through, or is it the relief of the actual pain and then the unfortunate circumstances that it does make me high, you right. know? So like where, right. right. And, and that's, I don't, I think I don't that's know where the people, answer. Right. Like if, I feel like if you, the, the real issue is it's one thing, cause I've, I've been in situations where I needed pain management and you can walk that line for a little while. But the length of time that you have had to walk that line and that you will continue to have to walk that line for, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, right. Like, let's see, say the foreseeable future. Right now. Yeah. Like, and like, and like my whole thing is like, I'm very, very vulnerable and honest about this shit. Yeah. You know, like I want people to know that I have to take oxycodone, oxycodone, to be able to fucking move. Yeah. To get out of bed because yeah. this pain at times is so debilitating that I can't fucking get out of bed. Yeah. And the like you said the amount of time that I've had to be on it. Yeah. It, that's what starts to play tricks on your head is like right. am I still sober? Right. Because I've been on this for so long. But so But then but then I at the same time I sorry to cut you off but yeah. At the same time, I'm, I, I don't take it, you know, I don't take it more than what's prescribed to me. You stay connected to your program. And I think that's the big piece is like, you stay connected to the questioning. Like it's when yeah. you, I think it's when you stop questioning, like when you've yeah, convinced when you yourself like, fully. Like, oh, fuck it. Like, it's yeah. like, like I'm taking it, I'm taking yeah. it. Yeah, like when you stop asking about your motives and you like, you're so connected and plugged in that I feel like the fact that you're questioning it is just part of the recovery aspect, but it's so important for you to talk about it because there are a lot of people living in chronic pain and sobriety. You know, it may not, it may not be the same chronic pain. And, and, you know, it's funny, I get a lot of calls about, you know, about medical marijuana and, 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 and edible thing recently that I've, because I want to get off, I want to get off. And that's what they, that's what people say to me. Like, I want to get off opiates. I need the opiates. I need pain management. What do I do? And, 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 and I'm like, look, you know, you have to, like, you have to make that decision with your professionals and it's okay. And also too, it's a, like, it's a program of personal recovery. Right. Right. This is personal to me. Not every single person in recovery is going through the the extremes that I'm going through. Right. And so I don't expect people to be taking (laughs) very strong opiates on a daily basis just to get out of bed. If you're doing that, you're fucking not sober. Right. You know, if you're not in actual true pain, if you're in true chronic pain and you know, we're trying and you're trying to figure out what's the best way to do this without falling down that, that rabbit hole again and you're doing it then like 100%. But if you're taking it to take it, then obviously you're not sober. And so like, right. that's another thing too, it's personal recovery and finding out what works for each person personally. And like, I recently 
you know, I started talking to a company that they sent me like, and like, I hate smoking weed. Me too. Ugh. I love everything about cannabis and the plants and what it does. Yeah. And I'm such a massive advocate of it for person, like for actual health and inflammation and so many different things like the actual hemp plant mm-hmm. is so powerful in so many different ways. And I truly think that in certain aspects, like if you look at the DNA of hemp and you look at the DNA of our, like our personal DNA, that literally they almost mirror each other. Oh, wow. I didn't know like, that. Like it's almost like, like we're missing something that that has and it's missing something that we have. And it's almost like it's supposed to fucking go together. Like I just, I've looked at every single thing to try to help, you know, kill cancer cells, yeah. shrink tumors, deal with pain, everything. Like I take, you know, a lot of the, uh, like, you know, like lion's mane mushrooms, uh, turkey, like all these different mushroom supplements as well to try to help with, with that. And recently I had this company send me these things and I was like, you know what? And I talked to a sponsor. I talked to my mom. I talked to my fiance. I talked to a lot of people about it and everyone's going to have their own opinions on what, you know, to do and not to do. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be relying on an opiate to be able to, to have to get out of bed every single morning and to be able to do just normal life things. And so what it is, is, you know, it's, it's like, it's, pre-rolled cbd joints and i would take a puff off of it and it would make you know the reason i don't like smoking weed is that it just it would make me feel very paranoid yeah and i like i could do an eight ball and yeah and feel more way. comfortable than taking a I, fucking hit off anything like, i'm just, literally the same way i always said that i was like heroin fucked me up less than having a hit of marijuana i would like literally was like walk a me in a fucking yeah. closet <gasps> like don't talk to me so scary it's the scariest thing in the world <laughs> so scary i'm like no i can't do it i can't do it. i know at least i know like it's straight up a, a, an yeah. eight ball i would be do much better oh yeah no i'd be totally fine but you know i i tried it one of them made me feel like that and i was like okay don't fuck with that one again <laughs> like i hated that like i sat here and i was like looked at my fiance and i was like she knows. Not good. Not good. Like, she knows. And she's like, she's like, what the fuck's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't feel right. She's like, what? And I was like, I think it fucked me up. I don't like this. Like, this is not yeah. good. And she's like, yeah. you're fine. Like, shut the fuck up. You're fine. And then the other ones have actually worked and started to, you know, help with pain management that don't make me feel anything. And, That's awesome. and I'm like, okay, now we're starting to find, you know, we're yeah. starting to make progress here. We're I'm able to take less and less of the opiates and I'm able to use those. And like, I always take CBD tinctures that have the zero THC that literally do not make you feel anything at all. I use that for information, Um, certain pain stuff. Some of them do and don't. There's so many different marketing scams with these big CBD companies that literally they're just the most shit fucking for all we know, it could be olive oil that we're fucking putting in our mouths. It literally tastes like it. But then there's like the, it's the, the family owned and small farms that I want to yeah. work with that actually, you know, I know what, I know that they're growing this for specifically right. for, you know, actual medical purposes to help with pain management and hearing other testimonies that it's working for cancer patients that are dealing with chemo and side effects and pains. And at this point in my life, I'm like, and in my sobriety, it's like, I can't let, judgment of others or my fear of judgment of others Mm -hmm. dictate how I'm going to get through 
the extreme situations that I'm in. Mm-hmm. And that is something I've had to overcome significantly, yeah. like really, yeah. really overcome because, you know, as an alcoholic, my biggest fear is what you think of me. Totally. That's my <laughs> biggest fucking fear is how you perceive who right. I am. Do you, do you think, think I'm sober? You yeah, know? Do you yeah. think I'm actually sober because I'm taking this? Not because yeah. if I work a program or if I work with others, mm-hmm. like I'm not sponsoring anyone right now just because of how hellish of a year this has been that I needed to focus on me. Yeah. But I still am very much of service in every yeah. aspect that I can in sobriety, outside of sobriety. I try to help others whatever that looks like and whatever that is for the, you know, for each day. And it's, I'm coming to a place of comfort where I'm like, I am learning to care less of what others think about what I'm doing to, to keep me going Yep. and to not, you know, drink and use and, you know, get loaded and, and not trying to change, you know, from the shoulders up. Right. And and so finding, you know, unfortunately, there's trials and tribulations of having to learn that even at, you know, uh, you know, six years sober, having to feel a little bit uncomfortable to, fi- you know, to find what's going to work for actual pain, you know, yeah. my real issues. And so, I mean, the reality is that if we put it into a pharmaceutical pill or whatever, like if we did that, then you know, and then gave it to you from a, a prescription bottle, like we wouldn't be having this conversation because it, yeah, somehow, somehow that would make it, you know, different okay and, I think, and acceptable. Right. And I think the the thing with medical marijuana is like, what are you using it for? Is it like, does it work for that? You know, um, and also too, dosage. Yeah. And also too, like, I made it very, very, very apparent, and I do make it very apparent to every company that I talk to. Is like, look, like I am in recovery. Yeah, I do not want anything to make me change shoulders up. Mm-hmm. If your product will make me feel like I'm high, I don't want to use it. Yeah, and I'm massive. Like I'm very open and very vocal about that. That's cool too, because they get to like those companies get to talk about you know use you and talk about your experience as pain management without that aspect of it. Like they get to get feedback exactly, and and that's great for other people in the position because I do think so many people get stuck on opiates and the thing about opiates, and there's some stuff about this with, with marijuana too, but the thing about opiates is that, you know, the tolerance, like it's not that you have to live on them. It's that they're not going to work forever. No, they're not. not. And and so it's actually not really even about taking them all the time per se. It's like it's not a long term solution. It was never meant to be a long term no. solution. So you have to find that's where people get super. Like I know that there's people who have chronic pain who like go through these big detoxes so that they so that they can get the medication to start working again. Right? Like they have to basically like yeah, just some crazy and shit. And after a certain amount of time, it doesn't work anymore. Because how many times have I detoxed out of the hospital Mm -hmm. to go back in and the pain meds not to fucking work? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm a living example of that. And so being able to find, you know, a vape cartridge that doesn't make me high, but it also relaxes my body and my takes away my pain. I'd rather take something that grew out of the ground than something that was created in a lab 
that I'm more susceptible to be addicted to that than I am to being addicted to something else, you know? Yeah. And I think the real big piece to this line is that you are so connected to a community. You have conversations with people, you run it by people, there aren't secrets. And I think where people get into a lot of trouble is with the secrets, you know, because, because it's because they're afraid or because they're afraid of judgment, like you said, afraid of what other people are going to think about them. And that's where you get into trouble. But when you're connected to your community, that doesn't mean that your community or like everybody has to say, yeah, that's a great idea. It no. just means, it just means that you are talking to multiple people, get it, you're willing, you're open to multiple opinions kind of deal. And you are, you're not hiding because that is where addiction, addiction is like mold, you know, it, it needs is. a, it it needs a dark grow. place. Yep. And once it starts to grow, it's not going to stop and you're going to have to throw it away. Mm-hmm. And it's just like sobriety. It's once yep. it starts to grow and it gets, like you said, like it, like once you start holding those secrets and you start doing, you know, doing it without talking to anybody and without being, you know, honest about what you're doing is when it starts to really spiral. And yeah. that's been such a big thing for me. And look, like I haven't been perfect through the through all of this like in the hospital there was times where was i taking the pain meds in the hospital you know when i was in the hospital was i taking it to to check out or was i taking it to to actually cure you know to start to, to deal with pain like I, there's that fine line of i don't know exactly what i was taking it for but it's also too is like i'm not afraid to be open about that and do i need to change my sobriety date over that i'm not entirely positive because yeah I, I don't know it's it's that and again that's that's a mental battle that I talk to people about right I bring that up and I be vulnerable and honest and and you know want to hear what people have to say about their personal experience about it because that's how we keep each other sober is sharing each other's personal experience with certain aspects of dealing with this and you know unfortunately for me not many people have been through right. what I've been through to right. be, you know, to have that, to have that understand, not, not saying they don't have the understanding, but to have that experience. But for me, I think that, you know, I've been able to maintain my sobriety because of the way that I, you know, I, in a sense, I think in a way that I have been able to stay honest through it all. And I'm not, you know, keeping shit within Mm-hmm. And I've been able to, you know, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just I, I think it's just honesty. Like I really have just focused on that, and and knowing that, like, if I continue to be open about everything that I'm going through and taking, and situational wise, you know, I'm not holding any secrets or withholding anything from anyone that is going to take me down, and. So for me personally, I feel like my sobriety has been able to stay intact because of that honesty and integrity yeah. in that in that sense. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's um I think it's quite a feat to to have come through all the things you're coming through and be able to, you know, keep that voice at bay because it's it's hard for those of us who don't it have, gets, you know, it, it gets loud. Don't have those things. Yeah, it gets loud. It gets it gets loud in there. There are ways that people can support you. There are companies in different ways. Can you tell us for people who are listening who want to support you, 
how can they do that? Right now, for the most part, I just have a GoFundMe. Okay. Um, um, it's just GoFundMe um, Lion Hair and Medical Fund. Okay, so uh, L- it's L Y O N H E R R O N Medical Fund. Okay, got it. And um, and then people can follow you on Instagram at lion l y o n underscore heron h e r r o n. Yep. And the the GoFundMe is also and the link in my bio. And the companies isn't there a way? Aren't There's, there some companies that donate that people can um, buy clothing? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I I'm dumbass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My fiance and I have a clothing company. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, you are forgiven. Yes. Wow. Yes, we have a clothing company. It is called Lie and Co. The website is lieandco.la. So L-Y-A-N-D-C-O dot L-A. We've been slacking on putting out new designs. Need to do that soon. We have We have some stuff that should be releasing soon. But yeah, all of that goes into just my day-to-day life and being able to pay rent. Um, obviously I'm not able to work right now. And, um, you know, that's, that's a, that's the way that I've been able to support myself over the past year and a half is, is through our company. So, um, yeah. And that as well as, uh, hopeful brand ambassadorships that will, you know, help pay a little bit to help with, uh, with just day-to-day living. Like I said, like, you know, my medical fund typically goes to paying medical bills and, you know, co-pays and stuff like that. Just I have to go into the doctors a lot uh, right now. I have to, you know, every once a month, I have to go in and have the drain exchange. I have to go into anesthesia once a month. Just out of curiosity, who's your health insurance? Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my payment recently went down. Thank God. I don't know. Like my insurance helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like I'll get I'll get I'll get bills that'll show up for like I don't know like fifteen twenty thousand twenty five thousand, and it'll be like insurance covered, you know twenty thousand of this, and yeah. so it's like, you know five thousand yeah. out of pocket and here there the other. Sometimes it'll be like a fifteen thousand dollar bill and I'll pay four hundred and I'm like that's insane. Well, I adore you, Lion. You are incredible and. um I think that the world is a better place with you in it, sharing your story and encouraging us, the rest of us to be really grateful for what we have and what we can do on a daily basis. Like watching your journey, you know, I'm reminded to, you know, make my pity parties shorter and shorter because, you know, our health is the most valuable thing that we have. And, and I think, you know, the first thing that we do as a drug addict and alcoholic is destroy it, right? That's like, like my, I have a brain that wants to destroy this vessel. That's what, that's the, that's where I go when, when, when I'm in a bad place, right? And so, you know, your positivity and your ability to process these things at five and six years sober, I've been sober 15 years. And, you know, I, I wonder if I would be able to muster that, that kind of that kind of positivity because it you know I've I've definitely had some medical shit that I've been through and let me just tell you 
I didn't take it as well. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't as cute as what you, uh, I had, I had eight and a half, seven and a half pound twins. And I had a twin pregnancy that was like fucking insane, like absolutely insane. Most painful thing I've ever been through. And, uh, and like, I didn't take it like a champ, like and people are like, oh, I can't believe you made it through. I was like, what else was I supposed to do? Like, yeah, you're like, I don't know what you're yeah, like, talking about. Yeah, like what, I, I didn't take it like a champ. I had no choice. I was a prisoner. You know, so I just, I think that, you know, pain is a is a real thing to overcome and, and you're doing an incredible job and we're rooting for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, tell my story and and to chat. It's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life. <laughs>